and welcome to Sip Sip Hooray, the podcast for thirsty people curious about wine and the people who make it. When you think of historic wine houses, more often than not, we tend to think of France. But California is also rich in wine history dating back to the 1800s. On today's show, we are fortunate to be talking with a vintner who has winemaking in his DNA. He is continuing the tradition of generations of winemakers in his family, and he's just written a book about his family's history, which is directly tied in with the history of the Livermore Valley. It is a story of farming with all of its frustrations and glories, and at its heart, it is a love letter to California winemaking. He is Stephen Kent Mirasu, a man full of passion, talent, and prose, and we are so excited to have him with us today. We are, of course, the two Marys who like to eat, drink, and be merry. I'm Mary Babbitt. And I'm Mary Orlin. And if you are a Pinot Noir lover, then you can thank Stephen's family for bringing the grape of Francis Burgundy to California. Stephen is a sixth-generation winemaker, and his family goes back to the 1800s, mid-1800s, in the Silicon Valley, although now he's in Livermore Valley. Um, he is now working side-by-side side with his son, the seventh generation, and um, it's appropriate that we are here today with Stephen sitting in the tasting room called the Lineage Tasting Salon, overlooking his home ranch vineyard here in the middle of Livermore Valley. Um, his first book, Lineage, is a page-turning read, and we're excited to get the inside scoop on his writing and his winemaking. Mary Babbitt and I first met Stephen more than 15 years ago when we did one of our episodes for our TV show, In Wine Country. So we are so excited to be back with you, Stephen. Welcome to Sip Sip Hooray. Well, thank you so much for having me. What took you guys so long to get back? <laughs> You're I, right. I was thinking about the the uh, the time we were filming downstairs, and and uh, that was great fun. And I've I followed both of you. You've done a tremendous job with bringing wine to people, which is an important part of our business. And can't can't be more excited than to have you here today. Thanks very much. Thank you, and I'm I'm thrilled for you. Uh, we are holding a copy of your new book. Tell me what drove you to sit down and write your story and write the story of winemaking and your perspective in this beautiful book, Lineage. Well, thank you very much. Exciting. This is one of the first times I've had a chance to actually see someone hold the book. I, I've been, <laughs> I've been, your baby. <laughs> my baby, your kid is fifth child. <laughs> my fifth child. Uh, this right. one doesn't talk back as much. <laughs> nah. Um, I have always wanted to write. I, I uh, have a, a master's degree in literature from NYU. And when I was a, a kid, voracious reader, still am a voracious reader, um, reading books and reading the kinds of books that I can emotionally connect to have always been a way of, of sort of helping me through rough times and the like. And part of the process of writing this book had a similar effect uh, for me too. Uh, the book sort of started as, as, kind of intermittent scribblings over the course of probably 15 or 20 years. I can remember living in, in Manhattan, thinking about dreaming about having my books be read by people on the subways and, and sort of seeing that as I was riding up and down Manhattan. And uh, life happens. And, and what you might think would be the natural order of your life at some point in your life when you're in your early 20s doesn't work that way. Meaning youth pictured yourself as an author as opposed to a winemaker. I did. I, when I went off to college on, uh, on the East Coast when I was 18, I told my dad I never want to get in the family business. Even though I worked as a kid at the winery, you know, sweeping warehouses out and working on bottling lines, the one thing that I missed, because school always started, was harvest. And when I started back in, in the wine business when I was in my late 20s, it was more in a sales capacity than it was on a production capacity. And while I love talking to people about wine, passionate about communicating what to me is so magical about wine. Uh, when I made my first vintage of wine back in 1996, 97, that was when I understood what it was I was supposed to be doing. There was something about being in a, in a cellar when, when all you heard was the fermenting of the wine and all you smelled was, was what was coming off of the fermentation tanks. And there is, there was an, uh, an incredible emotional connection to that activity, to that idea of creating something beautiful, sort of shepherding unruly nature as it were into a shape that gave people happiness and pleasure, which has 
continued to fill me emotionally as a as a creative person, I guess. So it scratched a similar itch. It did. It did scratch a similar itch. Writing was never far away, though. I mean, I would I would write when you know I'd write a blog post about fermentation or about a wine or what have you, um, and it. it when my when my wife was diagnosed with cancer in 2014, went into a very dark place for quite a while, and writing sort of helped me through that to a degree. The story of uh, of June and my meeting in college and and kind of what happened to her and to the family uh, is in the book as well. Um, but what what started as these kind of scribblings from from various parts of my life covering various aspects and times of my life coalesced into something when I, I sent this to my dad and just he likes to read and I, we were talking about the family history at one point in time probably over several martinis and sort of lamenting various uh, historical mirasu facts things that could have happened that did not <laughs> that would have put us in a very different the position the should have would have could have <laughs> and unknown to me he sent the he sent that 15,000 words or whatever it was to a friend of his who has a um a, a wine show in Napa, who then sent it along to to Paul Chutko, who's my now editor and and the owner and publisher of um, Val de Grasse Publishing. And he sent me an email out of the blue. I didn't know who he was. He said, you know, if you ever finish this, I'd love to publish it. And that was kind of, holy cow. Um, I love to write. I think I can write. Now I let's see if I can prove that I can write. And so over the course, and this was this was right before the pandemic, I think, like November, December of, of, of 19, and so I just kind of hunkered down in my office at night after getting done with, you know, wine work and, and, and uh, Miles Davis on the stereo and uh, maybe some gin, maybe some scotch and a little glass yeah. there too, and just, you know, tried to write a thousand words a night. And then over the course of, you know, the next six or seven months, I got to, you know, an 80,000 word manuscript and, and um, understood how much that aspect that kind of creative activity was was something that I really was desperate for also and so I had an opportunity then to kind of put these two strands of my life that were sort of the foundational strands and I got to braid them in a way and continue to braid them that will allow me to do both of these things that I'm so passionate about this book is a very personal book and it's very different from most other wine books out there it's not a dry, geeky book. It is, there's so much emotion. You reveal so much about you and your feelings and the things you've been through, the highs and the lows in your life. How is it sharing that with everybody? Well, you know, I, I don't know quite yet. <laughs> I, I look forward to, to, to learning that. The book is, as we're speaking now, is, is we actually have physical copies. They're being mailed out to people who've already purchased through my website. It'll be released on Amazon in September, early September. I'm looking forward to it. I, it, I, I've always, I, I'm a very emotional person, so it's natural for me to express myself in that way. I didn't, I wasn't, didn't start the project. I, I didn't know what it was going to be when I first started writing. It was just sort of get words on paper. You always have a chance to edit things. And the more that, you know, one day led to another day led to another day. And there's, you wake up in the morning, you see, well, now you're at 5,000 words and now you're at 7,000 words. Now you're at 10,000 words. It was then that it started to take a little bit of a shape to what it was going to be. And I felt that, uh, you know, what my story about wine and my story about writing yeah, because I think it's sort of intertwined, as is a story about f farming and about your winemaker's relationship with nature and the winemaker's relationship to barrels and the fermentation tanks and to the spaces where you do your work were resonate so much with me that I wanted to get that on paper. And I, I there's a certain style that I write in. It's certainly not the most, it's, no, it's not Hemingway, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> but... I tried to, in a, in a lyrical way, create an emotional connection with the reader that I imagined being out there. And, and so it's incredibly exciting for me to imagine people reading the book and hopefully loving it, hopefully learning a little bit more about wine. There, there's some technical stuff there, but it's, it's, it's interwoven with what, when, kind of what time of the year that you do these technical things, what they mean in the overall story of the creation of the wine itself, which is always a story about connecting emotionally with people. 
right? Just like with writing. Um, they're really the same activity. We're telling stories as winemakers and as writers. The vehicle's different, you know, a piece of paper versus a glass of Cabernet. But hopefully, if we can do it well and do it right, the, the recipient will we'll have the same kind of emotional connection no matter whether it's the wine or the, or the reading. So that, that's, that's been the goal for me and will continue to be the goal. Well, and you're, you have such a story to tell. We, we mentioned sixth generation, and, uh, I mean, that's huge in, in California winemaking. That's, it's, it's insane. Well, what we didn't mention is that your family is the oldest winemaking family in the United States. That's true. It's, you know, as if you put your marketing and sales hat on, mm-hmm you're always looking for a way to differentiate your brand. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I've known for since I, since I can remember sort of seeing the Mirasu logo, America's oldest winemaking family when I was a kid on, on, on the winery cases and the like is nobody can tell that story but me. And yeah. now my son, thankfully, is that we've been doing this. I joke it's because that's the only thing we know how to do. That's partly true. But it's, it's really more a testament to um, finding something that, you're wonderfully compelled to do mm-hmm. as, as, uh, as a craftsperson that you were just beginning to understand. I'm just beginning to understand my relationship to wine and my relationship to fruit as it hangs in the vineyard, my relationship to the tools we use to make wine and more and most importantly, the relationship between the wine and, and a potential audience out there. We, um, we have been doing this for, and I think it's 167 years now, if I do my math correctly, and it's it's a joy to be able to continue to offer people this this again this way to connect emotionally, a way to um, share celebrations. You know, you you we all know, you know, wine has such a central role in people's lives in terms of celebration, in terms of memorials. You know, you toast when a new baby comes in, you toast when a loved one goes out, and all of the different wonderful occasions in between. Wine has always served that role for people, and it's an important role. It's a, it's a, it's a way to, to glue society together. It's a way to cement friendships, make new friendships. Um, it, it's, a, it's a compelling product, just looking at it that way, compelling product, um, let alone all of the other kind of uh, emotional resonances that you get in a great glass of wine too. Mm-hmm. So f- the, the history of it is, is an amazing thing. I went on a trip to Bordeaux a couple years ago and my, my girlfriend was there with me, my fiance now, and they were talking about the fact they were making their first vintage in 1870 something. I whispered to her, these pikers, we were doing this 20 years before they were doing this in Bordeaux. <laughs> so that was, that was kind of a fun little uh, personal trivial note. But uh, um, it, it, it is meaningful to be able to continue to do what you love to do. That's the most important thing, I and, think. And to know that your family's been connected with all those celebrations over the, you know, over the many, many years. And, um, you know, it's, uh, there must be pride in that because your family could have made widgets or something and and there's not the emotional connection that you you get with wine. So that's cool. absolutely true. Maybe more money in widgets, but not nearly the <laughs> emotional no, exactly. <laughs> not nearly the emotional connection. I mean, when I see somebody in a restaurant with a bottle of my wine and they're having, you know, a 10th anniversary or whatever, that's that's in, that's, it, that's yeah. I'm incredibly honored that they would choose something that we made to help them to celebrate and cement that plate, you know, that put that little pin in their personal timeline um, uh, uh, with with something that we made. That's that's an, an incredible feeling. Yeah. Well, you've said that you make wines that you want them people people to feel the emotion that it's more about structure, tannin, acid, all that. You want people to ev- you want your wine to evoke a feeling when somebody drinks it. Absolutely. I, I, you know, I, we, as winemakers, from a technical standpoint, we're always concerned about making sure that there's balance. For me, wines ought to be beautiful and balance leads to beauty and beauty generally leads to deliciousness, which leads then to, you know, all the fun things you can have with wine and all the fun things you celebrate. We're always looking for trying to create a balance between um, the wood, the acid, the fruit, and the tannin of a wine. So we're very concerned about, um, from the very beginning, picking decisions are, are, are crucial, especially with the great black Cabernet Franc, which is something that we're, I'm, we may talk about today, that, that is going to be very important um, to, to, the, to our progress as a company, but certainly 
um, uh, there's no grape that creates that emotional connection, uh, maybe both good and bad, as as easily as Cab Franc does. It can be polarizing in a way, depending upon stylistically how you're doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and ultimately what we want is we want somebody to be able to go back into a, a glass of Stephen Kent Cabernet or Lineage Wine Company single wine or Lotricote Cab Franc, and every time they go back, they they learn something or experience something new. I've always thought of wine as a bottomlessly beautiful, if it's done well, but a, bot- a bottomless thing that no matter how many times you go back, if the wine's well-made and compelling and emotional, it gives you something new. You learn something more about the wine, but you learn something more about your own tastes. You learn something more about relationships between wine and food, if that's where you are. Um, and, you know, I, I, I know, and I'm sure you guys are the same, when you, when you have a beautiful glass of wine with you over dinner, or you're talking with your partner or what have you, your friends, if the wine is really good, it does create sort of a momentary pause for you with each sip, even if you're in the midst of this conversation, you know, uh, with your friends. Those are the little stoppages, the little kind of respites from everyday life that we want to create with wine. Uh, so, so that because wine's constantly changing, it has the opportunity of constantly changing a person. Mm-hmm. Even if we're only talking minute degrees, you add those up over time, it's, it becomes a really important thing, I think, under undervalued in a way, um, especially in times like we're in now with COVID and the like. Being able to give people a little bit of richness and joy in their lives every day is, is, a, is something that we, we hold as a, a hospitality credo here. And, and wine is the great vehicle for, for helping to offer that, I think. So true. Well, we have to talk about Livermore. You are such an ambassador for the Livermore Valley. And what I, what I think about when I think about your history here and your um, love of Livermore Valley and its wines and its potential, it's like, you're, it's like it's part of your family too. And in the way that you love it, unconditionally, but it also frustrates you, it seems at times. And I wondered if you could talk about that because you know how with families, you see everybody's best and worst, right? And if someone says something bad, man, I'm going to defend my family member against whatever, you know what I mean? You have that visceral, uh, this is my place. And so I would love if you wouldn't mind telling us about that relationship you have with Livermore Valley. And, And also paint the scene for our listeners who don't know anything about Livermore Valley. Yeah, yeah, where we are. Let me start there and then I'll... I thank you for that question, Mary B. Because that that's a that's a kind of a, um, I think foundational in a way. It Livermore Valley is a big character in the book. You know, it it, it is a character. I mean, this this is a um, the the book is partly autobiographical, but part history and part uh, all love letter to to wine and to the people who work in the business. Um, Livermore is one of the oldest growing areas in California, commercially growing grapes back in the 1860s and 1870s, right about the same time as Napa Valley. It is about 40 miles or so east, slightly south of San Francisco, and about, call it 70 miles south of Napa Valley, or, or the town of Napa, let's say, further away, obviously, from Calistoga, St. Helena, that kind of thing. Um, first great wine region in California. First international gold medal ever, ever given to a California wine was a... Um, a Cresta Blanca wine from, I think, probably 1885 or 6 vintage. It was a Sauternes, dry Sauternes-style Semillon Sauvignon Blanc blend that won a gold medal at International Wine Festival in Paris at the time, in 1889. Um, it really is a center of viticulture in a way. Uh, the Wente clone of Chardonnay is still 70% of the Chardonnay grown in California. The Concanon clone of Cabernet is 70 to 80% of the Cabernet grown in California. New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc really started with the California clone of Sauvignon Blanc, which was a Livermore clone in the late eight, uh, 1950s. Didn't um, I didn't either. So a lot of stuff that is kind of taken for granted now really has its origins in Livermore. Um, Livermore, one of the f- challenging things, if not exactly frustrating is that we're in the center, the good part is we're in the center of 6 million people. So from the standpoint of having an audience to attract, uh, we're in a great place. We are, as I said, in the East Bay, we're an hour from everywhere, or we're less than an hour from San Jose, we're less than an hour from San Francisco, we're an hour from the peninsula, so it's easy to get here closer than Napa Valley 
for instance. Um, but the frustrating thing is we're kind of right on major freeways and we're not highway 29 where you see the vineyards, you know, this beautiful, uh, kind of chateau festooned road <laughs> where you just, where everything breathes and, and, and kind of, um, epitomizes wine country, but you get off three miles off the freeway and you're on to Tesla road and it's gorgeous. It reminds me of San Jose back in when I was a kid in the early seventies. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're doing our best as a, as a, an association of winemakers here to bring more, um, more of those uh, hospitality businesses, restaurants, hotels, and the like to the valley so that we are giving people more reason to, to visit and stay here. Um, the, Livermore is a... Um, Livermore is sort of that transitioning duckling to swan in a way, not known by enough people. Um, I think frankly, not appreciated enough by some of the people who are making wine here. This is a world-class growing area. Every viticultural characteristic that you want, especially as a grower of Bordeaux varieties, we have in spades in Livermore. And message I'm trying, I've been trying to communicate to the people who've come and gone making wine here in the Valley since I started, you know, in, in, in 1996. We have, in my mind, a moral obligation to aspire to make world-class wine because we're in a world-class growing area. If we were in a place where you couldn't do quality-wise what we can do, there are excuses. There aren't any excuses. When you can make the best Cabernet Franc in the world, when you can make the best Cabernet Sauvignon in the world, and I'd put our wines up against any wines in the world, partly because I'm proud of what we do and partly because I have to sell wine too, but, but really more because I think that when the vision of what you're trying to accomplish from a wine standpoint, a very specific wine standpoint, wine style, when you couple that with what we have outside in our vineyards and what we have here in the valley from, again, from a viticultural standpoint, there's no reason to believe that you can't do it. And we've been working hard for 25 years to prove that we can. And I think that given, you know, if you're looking at ratings, given, you know, the, the customer kind of experience here that we're, 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 it's working. Yeah. It's working more than it's not working. Well, you work with what one vineyard, the Gilmetti Vineyard, which in my mind and some people's, and I probably think your mind, is really a Grand Cru vineyard. When you think about quality in Bordeaux, the top vineyards are Grand Cru's. I believe Gilmetti is Grand Cru. Uh, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, this is... Uh, from 2005, the vineyard, I think, was planted first in 2000, 2001. Uh, former partners of mine, the Gilmetti family, planted the vineyard, um, uh, a 64-acre vineyard. They had a Napa company come and install the vineyard, and they did a great job of, of planting the right varieties on the right soil types. There's six different soil types running through that vineyard. It's on a 100-acre parcel, 64 acres planted, all the Bordeaux varieties, now eight different clones of Cabernet, including Tokalon and Nibom Coppola and Mount Eden planted out there, along with clone seven, Concanon clone. Uh, We're very excited to see how those new clones do here. We're just... This will be the first harvest that will get fruit from those new blocks. Uh, and, and every other, and the Cabernet Franc that comes from, from Gilmetti, it's a magical place. It's a magical place. It plays a great role in the book I mean, in, in terms of its importance to me and my family, continuing even though we don't own the vineyard anymore. Um, uh, it, it, it's a site that is um, our own personal brigadoon. In, in a way, I mean, every day it pops up magically as this extraordinary place that was planted for very practical reasons by my former partners and did a great job and, and were wonderful partners um, while they were invested in what we were doing. But it, it's so much deeper than that. It's as a place, as a, as a, a, a sort of over the hundred acres hidden in these little niches or these um, arroyos that are fifteen feet deep in some places, and there's old. Before the vineyard was planted, people used to throw like old parts of brick houses into the bottom of the arroyo (laughs) because they didn't want to go to the dump or whatever. But as a kid, you see all these little forts on the bites of land that kind of jut into where the river used to run through there and sometimes still does like at the very beginning in 2017. All of these things are magical. All of these things obtain to a... uh, um, a place as a symbol not only for what one wants to do with one's professional life, but also a uh, the sort of the, the perfect symbol of the, the 
the the place that could be the family estate that you could see your grandchildren and great grandchildren running around and, and seeing and exploring something new every day. And then you add on top of that, a Grand Cru uh, quality vineyard. It's just, it's, 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 uh, it's, I, my heart still hurts uh, to a degree, um, but it, it still beats uh, with, with a lot of pride and, and a lot of excitement every vintage as well. Mm-hmm. And do you find that you're in good company as an evangelist here in um, Livermore Valley? Like, are you, do you have comrades who are saying, yes, we are making world-class wine with, in these, these perfect conditions and um, we, it's, it shouldn't be a secret. We absolutely, I, you know, David Kent and Darcy Kent, uh, the Wendy, no relation, no relation. <laughs> Darcy's last name and my middle name, uh, great friends, and and um, uh, David Kent and I and Carl Wenty, the Wenty family, obviously, are the, are the first and certainly the most important ambassadors at this point in time, I think, for Livermore Valley as a place and as a quality appellation. David and Carl and I and a woman named Lori Souza from the Tri-Valley Conservancy have started the Mount Diablo Highlands Wine Quality Alliance, so we're in the midst of, of, of standing up an organization whose job is to to not only evangelize the quality of the region, but to help winemakers and grape growers get to a level of quality that we all believe we should be in. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of there's a lot of activity, not only hoping and not only dreaming, not only you know putting wines in for ratings and the like, but really trying to create the foundation for the future of the valley um, from from a technical standpoint and a way of helping new winemakers who want to make great wine to make great wine. Because the rising tide lifts all boats, right? Sure does. There are a number of people who, who feel strongly about the area. And there there are, um, I think, a growing number. Certainly the younger winemakers, the folks from Nelaterra, for instance, um, are, are great believers in the valley. They're out in Sonol, so they see a different part of the valley, mm-hmm. different, different terroir. I'm excited to see how their project grows over time. Um, but there, there are a number of people here that I'm really excited to work with. That's fantastic, and you can keep that legacy going um which is great and hopefully the word spreads because you know let's be frank the quality issue in livermore valley has been an issue (laughs) (laughs) yes i wish i could disagree with you um when you're surrounded by 550 wineries as you are in napa there's there's a huge there's a very high barrier for entry a financially and there's also a very high standard that's set for quality there because uh, it, it, it is the, it, the, it's the greatest wine region in, in the U.S. For, um, for overall, if you add quality to amenities, to seriousness, to money, to visitation, all these different factors, there's obviously it's, it's, it's the most important wine region in, in the U.S. at this point, if not the world. Um, I have always believed that it is not the necessarily the greatest place in the world to grow Cabernet, that you can grow great Cabernet there. Um, it tends to be, generally speaking, of a certain style, a, cer- a style that we do not, we're not big proponents of, and I think our wines are very different stylistically, but you look to Ridge and Santa Cruz Mountains, you look to Mount Eden, you look to, um, you know, my father who's been a wine lover for practically every one of his 80 years at this point in time, Ridge makes the, has made the best California Cabernet over time, you know, outstripping Napa, outstripping no anything. And I, I agree with him. Um, our, our goal is to make wine here, whether it's Cabernet Franc or Lotricote or our lineage release or the premiere from Stephen Kent to be quintessentially uh, Livermore, quintessentially Stephen Kent Mirasu and Aiden Mirasu and Beth Ref Snyder, the, our winemaking team, uh, a function of our emotional connection to our craft, to our vineyards, to our fruit, to our understanding of our own palates at any given time, and to our audience. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm so excited by the fact that we, we, we know we have the raw materials here to get to where we want to be, which is a first growth California wine house. We want, you know, at some point down the road, when someone's collecting wine, and they're buying, you know, Margot, and they're buying Lafitte, uh, Rothschild and Mouton and, and Petrus and 
that they're buying lineage as well because it's one of those wines you have to have. That's ultimately what we're looking to accomplish from a winemaking standpoint. That's fantastic. And but also you are open to experimentation. And let's talk about this wine you have poured for us. It's beautiful. It's a coppery salmon pink color. Yeah, it's really pretty. And this is not something I would have expected from Livermore. It's a sparkling Barbera, Barbera being one of the red varieties out of the Piedmonte region in Italy. It was, um, we, do, we, do a lot, we do a lot of experimentation. <laughs> Nobody has had the piquettes that we've made yet. We hope to be doing that. You're we made, we, we made oh piquette last year. We'll do it again this year. We, we have to tell people what piquette is. Okay, so, starting with me. <laughs> <laughs> we spend a lot of time in the crush pad and a lot of time tasting as we're, as we're making wine over the course of you know three months or so here in Livermore, um, mid-August to sometimes mid-November. So it's almost four months at that point. Um, piquette. Piquette historically was... Um, the folks who worked at various chateaus couldn't afford the wine that they were making for, you know, the master of the house, as it were. But they were given grape skins, crushed grape skins, pressed off grape skins, that they could then take and rehydrate and re-ferment to make a low-alcohol wine uh, that that was refreshing, that, that was um, kind of a... a uh, another use of the product before it went to feed cows and, and, and you know, uh, get composted. So we did some experimentation with uh, Barbera, Red Barbera. We have a lot of Barbera here, even though it's a small acreage. So we made sparkling Barbera. We made a Red Barbera. It's a rosé of Barbera. We pick early. And uh, we wanted to make a, a method champenoise, you know, traditional method sparkling wine, second secondary fermentation. Barbera naturally high in acid, so it's a great blender as a red wine, but you want to have really nice high acid when you're making sparkling wine as well. So it fits that bill, and the fruit of Barbera is very different than Chardonnay and Pinot Meunier and Pinot Noir. So you get this beautiful fruit note up front of this wine, and it's very, very dry. Our our dosage was extremely small amount of residual sugar that we added because we all of us like dry wine. I think it's a better food style. I think it just... Mm. That acidity really highlights the fruit. And just it, it creates a really beautiful long finish on the wine. You get some nice raspberry and plum flavors. Yes, it's really interesting. Oh, it's 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 just zippy in your mouth. Zippy is a beautiful word. I pace is a very important aspect mm. of wine. I think that's an acid-driven quality. It's certainly kind of one of those four pillars of the stool, as it were, that is necessary to have in balance in order to have both ageable wine. You can have ageable wine with just tannin, but if there's not of acidity and fruit there at the end, who cares? Right. You've wasted time. Mm-hmm. But the nice, you know, the, the proper relationship between acidity and tannin will give you wine that ages well and ages long. Mm-hmm. So you want both those qualities. But for a sparkling wine, zippiness, acid is just a beautiful thing. I say this, I, I, people think I'm being facetious, but I'm not. It's a great breakfast wine. You think, <laughs> of, you think of scrambled eggs with creme fraiche and a little bit of caviar, yes, you know, yes. kind of, and and it, uh-huh. and it works beautifully with. So we'll call it brunch. Okay, yeah, it's fairly early when we're drinking this. I'm <laughs> enjoying it. Though. I know. It, it, I'm not gonna we'll lie. We'll vouch for the breakfast wine aspect. There you go. So it, it's it's um, a wine that we that we're really happy with. 18 was our first vintage. This wine's nearly gone. 19 will be out here in a few months. It's 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 entourage right now. Um, and, and with Barbera, we have a chance to experiment. As I said, as I said, we, you know, we made a couple pet nets. We also made the piquette. We did it in beer bottles. So mm, the, the kind of cool thing about piquette is a wine, a, a, a grape based fermented beverage is wine if it's over 7% alcohol. Mm-hmm. Piquette's not really a wine. Generally speaking, it wasn't for us because it was under 7%. Some people are making piquette that's over 7% because they add wine back into mm. it, which is fine. But we wanted to kind of do more fun things. So we, I think we, I bought like 13 or 14 cases of beer glass from a local beer supply place here in Livermore. And we hand bottled it in, in beer bottles. With the crown cap? With the crown cap on. Cool. And it was still fermenting. So it's a pet nat style piquette. Interesting. So that's where okay. the, the, the carbonation came from a pet nat, pétillon naturel, which is kind of the ancestral method of making sparkling right. wine, right? So instead of a secondary fermentation, you basically cap the wine off as it's fermenting. So there's a little CO2 left over. doesn't have the, the, the fizziness or power that, that sparkling wine tends mm-hmm. to have, but it's this beautiful 
much more uh, um, primary fruit flavored wine, mm-hmm. uh, the the Pet Nat. But it has, uh, and we did we did that at Barbera. We're going to do it from Albarino and Sauvignon Blanc oh, this nice. year too. So we're Fun. we yeah. we are experimenting. We're trying to make ways of uh, we're trying to create ways of of offering really delicious, cool, fun kind of session style stuff. I it's love only that. available for a couple of months. Right. Right. And have a six pack while you Grab can. Grab a six pack while you can. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. I'm laughing as you're talking, Stephen, because you warned me. You said I'm Italian. I use my hands on, <laughs> and we've got these giant mic um, the tripod deals, and there's these beautiful glasses with wine, and you're just gesturing everywhere. So if you hear a thunk here and there, that's that's a hand hitting there the you mic. Go. <laughs> exactly. I try to keep it to a minimum, but I can't help myself oh, sometimes. I love it. So good. Going to a, more, a little bit more serious wine. So you are a great Cabernet Franc lover. And I, I think, am. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it, you were inspired when you were in the Loire Valley. I was inspired by Loire Valley wines. I have not been to Loire oh, yet. You haven't been. But oh, I think we have go. a trip planned in April because I'm working on a Cabernet Franc book now. So oh, well, uh, again, a little Exciting. bit different kind of style of book, but but definitely want to talk to people who have been mm-hmm. doing Cab Franc from a region that that that's what they do. And I, I admire that so much where you kind of, you throw your, your hat in a ring for an, a variety that in the U S anyway, I think it's just now beginning to get, get a little bit of a, um, a buzz, which I think will begin to continue to grow, but to do that in the face of Bordeaux blends from Bordeaux and California Cabernet is a testament to history, a testament to, being in love with the variety that works particularly well in your area. Mm-hmm. You know, for, for, for those who don't know, most grapes in, in Europe um, or most wines in Europe are named for places and not for grape varieties, and, and that's a function of history. These folks have been making wine for 2,000 years. They've figured out where the, where the grapes work best. We haven't done that in California yet. We're beginning to. But in a lot of places, as my family did in the 60s in Monterey County, you just plant everything that you planted before. Cabernet that never got ripe, Syrah that worked okay, Chardonnay that worked beautifully, Pinot Noir that be- worked beautifully. Um, vineyards are expensive to put in the ground; they last a long time. So if you make mistakes, you're you've you've got you got some time to that you need to overcome in order to get back to where you know you could have been in the beginning. Mm-hmm. But um, um, Cabernet Franc is Cabernet Franc to me is is the variety that epitomizes what I want from my life and from my winemaking life, which is that emotional, that emotional hit, that emotional uh, sustenance, and that and again be able to use that to give that emotion back to people. It's I kind of talked a little bit I think of how it can be slightly. Which way? The middle? The, the, lift, the, the, the left. left, yeah. Okay. Um, We've got a, several yeah, we, <laughs> It can be a little polarizing uh, in that it's a variety that's prone to herbal qualities. And if it's unripe, it tastes a little bit like uh, green bell pepper sometimes. If it's, ex- if it's right on that kind of beautiful pyrazine ripeness line, you get, for me, you get sort of dried chili notes and you get sage and bay notes. Um this Cab Franc, which is from the Gilmetti Vineyard 2017 Lotricote Cab Franc, had no new oak. So this is all done in, in older barrels. Wood is important. Wood for us is important as a structural device, not as a flavor-giving or aroma-giving device. We don't want to taste or smell wood. We want it to be there for you know the structural aspects of the wine. We made, we saved the, the best two barrels from Gilmetti Vineyard and Sockel Vineyard from 17 to offer... What ended up being about 40 cases of wine each from these two vineyards. At the same time, we released our Livermore Valley from 18. We wanted to highlight these two amazing vineyards um, because they were both different, but they were both so beautifully representative of the variety. Uh, and um, it, it's the sexiest grape. I mean, there's just something <laughs> that's so viscerally exciting I, and and that's a great way to put and it. delicious about it that it, it I cannot approach this grape. Um, uh, with without without um, strong feelings, mm-hmm. without strong feelings, without strong, you know, likes and dislikes. Less dislikes than you know. What would I have done if I had made that wine or what have you? That would have been different in the like. But um, I hope you guys enjoy I, it. I'm loving it, and I love that oh, wow. description of it as sexy. You know, it's um, it's elegant. It's racy. <laughs> it fills up your mouth. It's delicious. It's just evocative of richness and beauty 
And Cabernet Franc is of the Bordeaux varietals, my favorite too. And I've had, and I've been in Chinon, um, which is it's in the central part of the Loire Valley, and it is home to some amazing Cabernet Franc. And this is just beautiful. What really intrigued me was that you say you believe Cabernet Franc is the future of Livermore Valley. Um, Tell us about Mm -hmm. that. I I was interested in that. I I do believe that. You know, climate change is a real thing. I think that we, you know, anybody who's been in California for the last several years has, um, especially in the Bay Area, um, has seen and experienced it, it getting warmer every year. Mm-hmm. Um, drought conditions. Drought conditions, wildfires, all, oh God, I shouldn't have said that out loud. Knock on wood. We are recording uh, this at a time <laughs> in California where there are several large uh, wildfires, not near here, yeah. but um, north of us, and it's scary. It is scary, and, and what in 17 may have seemed like an unusual thing. The, the horrible fires that really decimated parts of Sonoma and Napa in 17, the fires in 18, fires last year in 2020, um, are becoming more and more a byproduct of, of sort of natural occurrence, natural and uh, ordinary occurrence, put it that way. Sometimes it's natural, sometimes it's not. But um, what we're, we, you know, we're looking, we, I'm trying to create in my own, not only in my own mind, but in reality, a hundred year plan for the family and, and where we go from here. We've been here for 167 years. I certainly am, am over overwhelmed emotionally at times with the fact that my son is in the business when I didn't know that was going to happen. Kind of like the way I got into the business. We both arrived in on our own to understand this is what we should be doing. And hopefully my grandkids and the next generations will be involved as well. So we're trying to figure out a way that we can, make sure that there's the, the, the raw products that we need to make great wine are here still. Livermore's done a great job with, with conservancy of, of acreage for agriculture. So the South Livermore Valley plan, which we can kind of see as we look out our windows and our vineyards are part of, uh, are, are guaranteed in perpetuity for, for agriculture. Not necessarily grapes, but we're hoping that we can figure out a way to help growers through our wine quality alliance make enough money to keep to keep uh planting and replanting and having kids follow fathers a lot of that has to do with wine quality so the better wines we make the more attention we bring to what's happening here the more the more dollars per ton the growers can get for their product which means they have a, a greater opportunity of staying in business just yeah, like the more you preserve this indeed vineyard space. indeed cabernet sauvignon here in the valley climate change for us really i think has been uh, epitomized by wind. This has always been a wind-dominated appellation, kind of like the Salinas Valley, where my exactly. family had grapes planted in the '60s, uh, where they had, um, you know, sort of coming from coming from the north from Monterey Bay, and then kind of washing south through through Salinas Valley. We get it directly, sort of east from San Francisco or west from San Francisco Bay. So, as temperatures change over the Altamont Pass, it serves as a vacuum that brings in more and more air from San Francisco Bay. What we've seen this year, wind speeds two degree or two two miles per hour faster than they were the year before, and the year before that, and the year before that. Vines don't like wind; they protect themselves. They close up their the leaves close up their the stoma, the kind of microscopic holes, so they maintain moisture, which means they stop photosynthesizing for the for that period of time, which means for us shorter growing days. You still need an aggregate number of growing hours and growing days in a year to get fully ripe fruit. We're already harvesting a couple weeks after Napa is done with Cab. We're just beginning harvesting from Gilmetti Vineyard in the east side where it's the coldest. And our fear is that the first week of November, the second week of November, which is average for us now, becomes the third week, becomes the fourth week as the winds become more dominant, uh, that we won't have enough time to get Cabernet Sauvignon ripe. Mm-hmm. That it won't get ripe. It'll especially be, before any rains come, if they come. I exactly, mean, that's another concern. Even if it's not windy at sixty degrees, and so you're really not looking. Sugar production doesn't really happen at that point in the year. All the leaves are off of every other variety except for Cabernet Sauvignon, generally speaking. So for us, a the emotional connection and the absolute beauty of Cabernet Franc as a variety. That's the first driving factor for me personally and for my team. Secondarily, it ripens two to three weeks earlier than Cabernet Sauvignon. So while this window is shifting, 
further and further out for Cabernet Sauvignon. We still have it kind of firmly in the middle for Cabernet Franc. Mm -hmm. And so we believe that Cab Franc will get ripe here, that are just huge numbers of microclimates in the valley. The the elevation changes we have here, the soil, you know, the myriad soil types that we have here are gonna are going to uh, be a very hospitable place for Cab Franc as a variety. And the more that the the better wines we make and the more of it that we make and the more we can get it out to people, the more it becomes uh, attractive to other growers here. In fact, if a new friend of mine is planting a 13 acre of Cab, uh, 13 acres of Cab Franc this coming year. So five years from now, we'll have that much more Cab Franc we had a chance to work with. Very exciting for us. Um, I, I think it bodes well for the future of the Valley. Yes, I would agree. And I think it's also the other part of that is just getting it in front of people's minds so that they think it's, oh, hit the mic again. Um, <laughs> so as they, you know, are searching for uh, a wine to bring to a friend's house for dinner, they're not just looking at which cab or which Chardonnay or whatever that um, Cab Franc is front of mind. Exactly. It, it really kind of cool thing about Cab Franc too. It's sort of a, it's kind of a, it's the father basically of most of the Carmenet family of grapes in Bordeaux. So Sauvignon Blanc and Cabernet Franc had a little uh, little tete-a-tete, as it were, in the vineyards <laughs> a thousand years ago and created Cabernet Sauvignon. And Merlot is a product of, of a cross with Cabernet Franc uh, uh, as well. So Cabernet Franc is 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 really an interesting grape in that it is a uh, um, it produces a, a wine with tannin, a wine with cert- with structure and acid and 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 beautiful richness. It's just not as big as Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, and it's funny that it's it, the child is a is a product of a less big red grape and a white grape, and it's much bigger than the than either of the the progenitors. So it, it's it has its own interesting history, and. Uh, the Loire Valley really has been kind of an inspiration for me. I write about discovering the wines from uh, of of um, uh, of a, uh, of Kermit Lynch, uh, who owns a wine shop and an importer of of great wines from the Loire in Berkeley, and those were really the first great uh, Loire Valley wines I tasted. And and from that point on, in in, in you know the early nineties, that was wow. Okay, wow. That that's something really exciting which you want wine to be, of course, and delicious, which you want wine to be, of course. Uh, and it's something that, that, that we can do in Livermore. It will grow well here. I think our first vintage of Cab Franc was 2006 of 100% Cab Franc from Gilmetti. And so we've seen a different, we've seen changes in winemaking. We've seen from, you know, new oak to, to no new oak. Now we're doing stuff in punchins for the most part, because we want the beautiful fruit of Cab Franc, which is so singular. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like smelling uh, Sauvignon Blanc mm-hmm. or, or um, you know, it's such a sing- singular aromatic kind of composition to it that it's, it's pretty unmistakable when it's done well. Mm-hmm. Such an exciting, such an exciting variety. And the fact that, that, you know, with care in the vineyard and not screwing things up in the cellar, you can make something that's really compelling which is neat. So you call your Cabernet Franc L'Autrecote. Can yeah. you explain that? So L'Autrecote... Um, uh, I, I, I have just enough knowledge of French to be dangerous. I did take it through <laughs> high school. Remember more than I can speak. But L'Autrecote is the other shore. So it, it's kind of that right bank, left bank sort of um, paradigm, as it yeah. were. And, and for listeners who may not be aware, when you're in Bordeaux, the um, left bank usually are wines that are Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot dominated. The right bank of the river, it's the Je- the Gironde. Gironde River, yeah. right. Um, you find the wines are more Cabernet Franc dominated or Merlot dominated. Exactly, exactly. Cheval Blanc sometimes is all is practically all uh, uh, all Cab Franc. And th- those, those wines are interesting because Bordeaux wines are always blended for the most part. Uh, and so... It, those relate the relationship between Merlot and Cabernet Franc is a really an interesting one in uh, on the right bank. Uh, the Loire Valley is one, really the first, the greatest region for unadulterated Cabernet Franc and for Chenin Blanc on the right hand side, so on, yes, on the yes, white side. In, exactly. Um, that that uh, those two grapes are just really compelling wines in and of themselves, and and that's kind of the I want to go back to kind of where it all started. That was really kind of the first place that those grapes were planted, although the grape is probably from the southwestern part of France. It was brought up in the 1600s by Cardinal Richelieu um, to, to the Loire and and then moved down 100 years later to, to Bordeaux. So it's 
that really is kind of its first and, and I think truest and purest and most authentic home is in Loire. So right. I'm excited about seeing it finally. That's very exciting. And our, we have another wine here. You do. You do have another wine. What is this one? What's this little beauty? So this is 2017 Lineage from the Lineage Wine Company. This is this is a Bordeaux blend. So this is uh, this is a blend of, in this vintage, it is 75% Cabernet, 20% Merlot, and 5% Cab Franc. The first vintage of Lineage was 2007. And in 96, when we started, we wanted to make one Cabernet that we thought could compete with Napa, show what Livermore is able to do. And so we, we worked with that. We continue to work with that variety, not with that vineyard. That vineyard doesn't really exist anymore. But as I made more and more wines that were non-Bordeaux for wine clubs and the like, I, I lost a little bit of clarity in my own mind and lost a little bit of, of connection with that original impulse of making one really, truly great representative wine from Livermore. And I needed to get back to that. I think that's a pretty honest and cool thing to say. I yeah. lost touch with the yeah. thing I really mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. craved doing initially. I, I, you know, <laughs> uh, you're never guaranteed the next vintage, mm-hmm. as I personally know. Um, and that experience, coupled with the fact that I'm in my mid-50s now, or just past my mid-50s, has, has led me to the knowledge of I probably have fewer vintages ahead than I have behind me. It's important to do the best job you can with the time that you have left. Why, why dink around with things that are good when you can, uh, when you can really point your energies towards something hopefully that's iconic and great? Heck yeah. And lineage became that wine for me in 07 when 07 great vintage as you as yes. you know everything that came across the crush pad was fabulous. And so I I spent a year and a half putting a blend together that was a Bordeaux blend and not 100% cab. Um. By default, by definition, more complexity, less tannin, less structure, perhaps, because of the inclusion of Cab Franc and Petit Verdot and Malbec or whatever, what have you. But um, as that project has progressed from 07, 16 was our 10th anniversary of that wine. 17 was our was our 11th vintage, and the and some press folks gave it a 100 point score, which was gratifying, mm-hmm. and um, sort of. Uh, Thank you for for helping us to realize what it is we knew we could do. Just sure. in terms, of and that goes to your point about the quality of Livermore Valley. Absolutely, uh, this is this is a magical spot, you know. And 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 I think the more that we get our wines out there, and the more producers that actually make wine from Livermore, the more they're going to understand how how it's an advantage being here and not a disadvantage. But the seventeen wine is just, I think, just a beautifully rich. Very complicated in a good way. Yeah. Um, complex, I should probably call it. <laughs> complex uh, representation of those three grapes put together. It's a baby right now. A lot of baby fat still mm-hmm, in the mid palate mm-hmm, on this wine. Mm-hmm. And while 18 and 19 are a little more austere um, and I think are, are of exceptional quality as well, the 17, just there's something about the 17 that will always be magical. It was a year of fires for Napa and Sonoma. It had its uh, a small effect on what we did with this wine in terms of I think lengthening the growing season. We kind of got basically a smog layer that 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 made um, made sugar production take longer because you just didn't get clear skies. So you had kind of UV radiation working its way through a bunch of smoke. It took longer to get things ripe. So all the other ripening curves that happen in grapes kind of got in sync. So we were able to get. Uh, really nice physiologically ripe fruit at, at a relatively low sugar level. So it worked out beautifully. You know, unfortunately for others, it didn't. But for us, it, w- it was, a, it, in my mind, perhaps the best vintage in 25 years, wow. 17. So very excited about That's the wine. And, this and is a terrific, a terrific glass. Just it's a really beautiful. lovely wine. And as you said, it's very complex. You know, the tannins are there, but they don't hit you in the head. Yeah, they don't punish you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, just gorgeous. So in getting ready to talk to you today, um, I thought maybe I have a bottle or two of your wines in my collection. And I discovered I had a 2011 oh. lineage. Oh, wow. So <laughs> I, I'll, I'll just share know. my tasting notes because in t- many people heard that 2011 was not such a good vintage. It was routinely panned when it first came out. 
but this is when it pays to be patient. Mm-hmm. And some of the those vintages that aren't blockbuster out of the gate su- sneak up on you and surprise you and have a longer life, I think. Uh, Which is one of those things that people, like you talked about earlier, wine changes. It's not mm-hmm. a stagnant no. thing. So very so, interesting. So my note is this wine is alive. Beautiful. It was an explosion of fruit. Now, the fruits were more brambly and dry than fresh, but they were still very distinct black fruits. Had a lot of herbal notes, the sage, thyme. There was a really tart note, and I was really surprised at the acid, which is probably very responsible for its longevity like this. It was just fantastic, and the tannins were just like satin. So it had um, cocoa and cardamom and anise and a really lingering long finish. Well, that, oh, that's not too that's, shabby. That's <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. Well, I was excited and I corvin in the bottle, so I still have more left. But it'll, it'll, it'll be better the next time you go back to taste it. <laughs> that that uh, one of the one of the neat things about wine for both the consumer and for the winemaker is that. Not only does wine change because of its nature and uh, the way that it's made and the fact that there's oxygen in solution that continues to, to create uh, tannin chains and change things as wine ages. Um, one of the amazing things about wine is it marks time. Mm-hmm. I had a child, let's just say, for instance, was born in 2011, and I want to collect 2011 so that 25 you know, 21 years from now, this this child of mine can have the wines from his or her birth year. Mm-hmm. I got married in that year. I might, you know, whatever. Yeah. Wine, wine, one of the important things that it's able to do is to mark time, um, to mark special occasions. It also marks really hard vintages, uh, just as well as it marks easy vintages. 17 was an easy vintage. 11 was a hard vintage. 11 was a rainy vintage. It was it was a long vintage. So we, what we did get ripe got really nicely ripe. But we had to declassify a lot of fruit because mm-hmm. it was it would rain cats and dogs mm-hmm. right up through harvest time. So we were harvesting in the rain, hoping, you know, it, and it rained in successive days. So you'd harvest some, and you'd hope that it would dry out, and, and we'd be able to get a couple of degrees more sugar if that were the case. But it never did. So 11 for me was one of those uh, amazing years, not only because it was harder to make and hence was uh, more about... Um, sort of bringing to bear the, the experience and, 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 and the skills that you had as a winemaker. I love those style, that style of wine, a little bit more austere, a little more acid-driven. I think that your acid note is a function of the vintage, um, that, that sugar levels were lower, acid levels were higher. There was an, there's an elegance, and there's a, there's a... What I like about those kind of wines that are a little austere is that they hide... Uh, or they don't reveal yet all that that wine is going to show you at some point in time. I still think the 11 is a young vintage, and I've had it recently, and, and I, I think it's a glorious wine, in part because it's going to show a lot more down the road than it's already showing. And that's, just, that's a fun thing as a winemaker and a wine consumer, is that this wine's going to live very, very well for a lot longer, um, even at the same time that it gives you something beautiful to taste now. Mm-hmm. Right. And so from that perspective, 11, 11, 15 was a little bit like that uh, for me as well. But 11 will always be a very special vintage for us. Just like 98 was. 98 was another I'm one sure. of those panned mm-hmm. vintages mm-hmm. That, that... Especially coming after the great 97. 97 yes. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And sometimes, you know, I, I'll, I'll... Like with 17, frankly the 18 premiere and 18 lineage, which hasn't been released yet, are showing so much better than I anticipated them showing because I was sort of starstruck by how great 17 was. Yeah. 19 is showing amazingly well. So I'm so excited. I need, to, I need to train myself <laughs> to not be too emotionally you know, attached to or girded up by a vintage that's great and, and, and you know, sort of give uh, too short shrift to these things that are coming afterward that, that maybe equal or even better. Well, so that's I, exciting. It's like but loving your children equally, yeah, you know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, I was wondering if there was a, sp- a special part of the book that you'd want to read to us. 
um, you know, a, a paragraph or two or a page or something that, that really resonated with you. Um, I just think it's such a beautifully written book. And there are some yeah. places that make you laugh and you use, uh, you know, some frank language in places. Yes, it can be very colorful. <laughs> I love that. And, um, I know. I was like, which is, wow. you know, to me, that's relatable. That's real. Yeah, and I you. thought it was very refreshing. As, as I said earlier, it is not your typical wine book. It, it is emotional. It is surprising. It is real. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I wasn't writing for effect necessarily. Um, I, I, I tend to get excited about wine and I tend to, the language I use sometimes, I know that certain people like my son don't, don't like me to <laughs> say stuff like that necessarily, but thank you for asking for this because I, I we're, we're having a, um, a party in a couple of days to launch the book at the winery. And I was thinking to myself, I need to pick a passage that I want to read that, that kind of sums up uh, what I felt about the process and the like. I don't think this is the one that does it necessarily, but this to me kind of encapsulates the, the sort of the, 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 hopefully the sense of hope and the sense of um, having come through, you know, 25 years worth of winemaking and what that does to people. I'm going to read the last couple paragraphs of the book. Okay. Um, and I, cause I, I think it, I, I like it. Okay, we'll, we'll cool. Go there. <laughs> Thank Let's you. Let's do it. Let me, let me find I'm going to drink while you do me that. Me too. <laughs> I'm going to drink some Cabernet Franc. Okay. I think we had three paragraphs here or so. There is no more beautiful landscape than a vineyard at its most full. There isn't any other greens word with more promise, more mystery, and more hedonistic delight. Where I am now, higher up, I can see the ordered rows laid out as they run away from me, hugging the curve of earth to a single point at the far margin. Rays of green leaves, greedy for light, laden, heavily pregnant, and promiscuously heavy with the stuff of 45 moutons and 61 shovel blanc. Though I get a sense of the continuity of the family business when I'm in the cellar or on the road traveling from one market to another, I feel it most keenly here. I'm not sure why. I grew up away from the vines and became a man in big cities, but it is in the middle of the vines, alone and perceptive, that I feel most consequential. It's in our vineyard this evening on the eve of harvest, when the last light comes in on the horizontal, with all that life surrounding me, that I realize there is no finer place for a summing up of life to this point. This vineyard is the place where, I, where my wife's ashes are spread, as it is the place I fell in love with my fiance. It is the synecdoche for all things of humble and perfect worth, just as it is our family's ur site. In the fading light of the day, if you squint just so, you can see this place shimmer and become the vineyard my thrice-removed grandfather first planted 160 years before in San Jose. In the soft warmth of the rising night, they have become one and the same, planted by the same men, the connective tissue of time raveling in both directions, finally meeting after more than a sesquicentennial adrift and apart. There are inevitabilities. Empires will fall, and the ones we love deeply will pass. The rose will keep going forever, though, meeting down at the horizon beyond our sight. The fruit will be suspended in the joyful and warm and full yellow of summer always. The winemaker's shadow, his, mine, my child's, and grandchild's, will hang out long against the earth in the late hours, and the life around us in this refuge will vibrate and buzz and fill us to breaking. We will kneel in the rows in the warm shade of day's end and be clothed by green leaves and we will plunge our hands into the fecund soil as we feel the ocean-pushed breezes cool our shoulders and we will know again that we are ineluctably rooted to the green and ageless heart of the world. Gosh, that can bring a tear to your eye. That gives that me chills. Thank you very much. Yeah, I see Thank that um, that English major and <laughs> you really certainly hear. love of words. Oh, no question oh about that. Oh my goodness, that's Thank just you. beautifully expressed Thank you. Thank and you very much. and also beautifully read. Thank you, you can really feel the emotion mm-hmm. in your voice. And Thank you. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. Appreciate Thank that. you for sharing Thank you that for and for letting me. I, I'm so touched by your, as Mary said, your honesty and the way you allow your reader to feel connected to your history and and the and your thoughts what you're feeling and i uh, you know i think that's what most of us wine 
lovers want. We want something good in the glass, but we also want the story. So thanks for sharing the story. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for letting me. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate the, the, the camaraderie that yes. we have around the table. <laughs> and you're, you're right. I mean, wine, at its, at its worst, it should be delicious. <laughs> uh, but at its best, it has a, a, you know, a real opportunity to open up doors for people and, and, and uh, uh, create these liminal spaces that I'm excited about these thresholds of discovering understanding that uh you never know what might happen and that's that's the mystery of it is all really cool and that's what we love about wine so Stephen, thank you so much for sharing your story your wines we've really enjoyed reconnecting with you I, I hope it's not 15 years again before we, we hope can do not. this. We hope so, too. Definitely not. Cheers. Thank you. Sip, sip, hooray. Thank you so much. Wow, Mary Orlin, that Stephen Kent Mirasu is a wonder. You talk about talented. He's a writer, he's a winemaker, he's a storyteller, and just an all-around nice guy. I could talk to him forever. He's just got a ton of interesting tales to tell and uh, interesting life experiences to share, and that's why I'm so excited about his book. Well, it's amazing. You know, we said it before, I'll say it again. It is not your typical wine book. This is not a marketing document. It's not meant to sell his wines. It really tells the story of California's oldest winemaking family, which most people are not aware of. That is the Mirasu family. And it's just incredible. The words, his prose is just so powerful. I mean, it's, it's so personal. Yeah. He's really um, candid and, 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 you know, he uses colorful language at times, as we said, he just, you know, he's not trying to, uh, oh, I don't know, paint a picture that isn't, you know, his truth. He tells his truth, the, you know, warts and all. Absolutely. And that's, I think what makes it a very compelling read and, you know, and couple that with his beautiful wines. I mean, you know, I was blown away by Laura Tocote, his Cabernet Franc, and, uh, you know, his sparkling Sang- um, Barbera, I'm sorry, his sparkling Bam- Barbera um, for the Mia Nipote label was just so fun. But, you know, he's, he's, he's incredible. And, you know, I've always said that there's all these folks out there that just don't get the attention they deserve. I think Stephen Kent Mirasu is one of these people, and I hope that this book brings more folks into awareness of who he is, what he's doing in Livermore. Livermore is an amazing place to grow grapes and make wine, and I hope more people will discover this. Yeah, so the book is called Lineage, and you can find it on his website, stephenkentmirasu.com. You can also find it on Amazon, and I'm not quite sure it's, I think it's uh, September is the release of it, but it makes it'll make a perfect holiday gift. So, um, uh, you know, certainly keep your eye out for that. But do visit Stephen's website, Stephen Kent Mirasu, to learn more about how you can get your hands on a book. Absolutely. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we would love for you to share it with all of your friends and family. Um, you can go to our website, sipsipparaypodcast.com. You'll see all the different platforms that we broadcast over. So be sure to subscribe to one of those so you don't miss another episode. You'll also see all of our past episodes, which are totally worth a listen. And please follow us on social media, Sip Sip Hooray Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and Sip Sip Hooray, the number one on Twitter. We'd love to know when you read this, what your thoughts are. Yeah, so let us know. Stay in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. And we thank you again for listening to Sip Sip Hooray. Cheers to you, Mary Orland. Cheers, Mary Babbitt. (laughs) See you soon.